0: I'm Chris Sheets, and I'm your host for the Celebrity Podcast, where we sit down with celebrities from the worlds of music, sports, TV, and movies to hear their stories about the pets they love. He was in Harper's arms the entire afternoon, just hanging out, eating all the you know the hors d'oeuvres and stuff like that. How cool is this? Charlie doesn't even realize he's in the Prime Minister's arms. The Celebrity Podcast. Available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google
1: Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Harper. The morning news with Sue DL and Andrew Schultz on 770 CHQR.
0: 709 on the morning news, Canadian crude oil prices are expected to strengthen in 2020, which means that Canadian West Coast exports to Asia markets could enjoy superior access as a result of shorter transportation distances. What does this mean for our province? Well, for some answers, we're joined by Andrew Botterill, National Oil and Gas Leader with Deloitte a Resource Evaluation and Advisory Group. Good morning, Andrew.
2: Good morning. How are you today?
0: Great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, let's take a look back first. Uh, the end of 2019, how would you characterize it for the industry? Well, you know two thousand and
2: nineteen as a whole was um, there was a lot of uh, work for Canadian producers to come to understand some of the issues that we had with pipelines, curtailments, the government stepping in and uh, needing to moderate volumes out of uh, Western Canada and. I think it took a lot of last year to really come to grips with what that looks like, start to work through that oversupply. And I think that's why we think 2020 is going to be better for Canadian producers is we can see that uh, that coming to an end this year and and, and really see some more um, uh, solid times for Canadian producers and, and those exports.
3: Can you explain why we had such an oversupply, as you said? You know,
2: ultimately it came down to... Um, the industry had built up, continued to, to grow production, grow their portfolios. And when we had some of the major pipelines, uh, Keystone and and TMX, uh, not happen and not be approved as quickly as one had hoped, we saw a lot of producers um, get to the point where, you know, the entire basin in Canada was, was outpacing what that uh, pipeline capacity was to export. So when we outpaced that, that was when uh, we saw those Extremely uh, tough differentials last winter and took a lot of this year to start to work through um, basically all that oversupply. And then in 2020, we hope to get through all of that.
0: So the forecast looks uh, fairly rosy. And what do you hang that on? Well, I just think it, I
2: think now that we're past some of these, we can start to see some the end in sight for curtailments uh, probably in the back half of 2020. And, and I think that just means that uh, it's going to be a little bit more business as usual, allow companies to be a little bit more certain on investing capital and what it might look like and, and be able to compete against some of the other producers in, in the United States.
3: And particularly now that it looks like Trans Mountain is a go and will go ahead and reach completion, hopefully, fingers crossed.
2: Yes, absolutely. It's important to the to the basin. What's also been great is we've seen pipeline companies uh, step forward, and, and, and they're looking at finding small projects, uh, looking at adding capacity on their major pipelines going into the U.S. So those small projects as well help to get through and alleviate some of this oversupply.
0: Something you uh, noted in the report is that with the smaller producers, uh, they need access to capital, and uh, talk about how you can see them achieving that in 2020, uh, because obviously this was an issue in the past 12 months.
2: Well, exactly. As we looked at the last year, it was, it was tough for anyone to attract capital and want to invest when you knew that as a basin, we couldn't actually put any more um, volume into the United States and we were curtailed. So I think if we can get past that, you can start to see those strong uh, juniors and mid-sized companies look to compete and, and hopefully attract some capital and, and spend some money on rigs.
3: And when do you think that it'll be that we, we start to see those stronger crude prices? And, and what do you expect or what is your forecast that they might hop up to? Well, our our forecast this
2: year, you know, I, I like to look at it over a longer frame. Um, it, it is going to be about, we think about $58 WTI, which is up from the 56 at average last year. Um, it is important to note it's, it's trading significantly higher given the volatility in the Middle East right now. So. I think that volatility will continue to come, but I think overall we're going to see structurally better, more sound economics for Canadian producers, which I think is important. We're insulated sometimes from some of those uh, international markets, Um, and I think we're going to see a little bit uh, stronger pricing and a uh, a little bit more firm footing.
0: Give us a behind-the-scenes look as far as a forecast is like this is concerned. Obviously, in the past few days, you mentioned the volatility. That's a kind of a game-changer. Do you folks issue a new one uh, in the next month or so, or how does that work? Because it's such a fluid situation
2: it is such a fluid situation we try not to react too quickly we like to look at things at what the price is going to be over a, a sustained period and uh, are we going to be keeping an eye on on conflict in the middle east absolutely and it's going to take probably a few weeks to months to really understand are those ramifications of that going to be something that's going to bring structural change to the middle east and uh, are there going to be some major players that are involved and 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 uh, cuts in production from that region, which could dramatically affect. There may be, and, and that's something that we're going to continue to watch, but I think what is important to note right now is the world as a whole does have a lot of oil. Um, OPEC has been cutting production um, to help manage and keep prices up firm, so I think we do know that if a conflict does occur, there is a lot of volumes and there is a lot of storage in the world that should be able to manage and we shouldn't see a big, huge run-up on price. So um, we're expecting things to be relatively calm by way of pricing
3: over the long term. Now, what are you looking at, Andrew, in terms of natural gas producers? This looks like for this 2020, it could be good news for Canada as well. Well, 2018 and
2: 2019 was uh, was really tough on Canadian producers for natural gas. And I think uh, a lot of the pipeline companies have worked with new agreements and, and New, uh, transportation agreements to get natural gas into the United States that really has been built on the backs of making Canadian gas competitive against the U.S. So the U.S. isn't necessarily drilling a lot of natural gas right now, but they are producing a lot of natural gas from the oil plays that they're chasing right now. So as the U.S. is slowing down their drilling on their oil plays, we are seeing, a, you know, expecting a slowdown in some of their gas volumes, which means, you know, there might be some time for Canadian volumes to get back into the U.S. market and compete.
0: Well, you know, you mentioned that the the resources there and the uh, interactions uh, on the world stage is there to to have that demand. What about a a lag when it comes to employees? Because I know a lot of these companies have let a lot of employees Mm. go. We ramp up again. Could that slow things, uh, getting the people and the human resources in place? You know,
2: It is going to be slow. I think one thing that uh, Canadian companies have done in the last few years is, and I know it's been uh, tough on the backs of job losses, but um, we have made ourselves extremely efficient. And I think that has actually increased the competitiveness of Canadian producers and our oil and being able to compete on the global market. So I That is extremely important for oil and gas producers, and it's not something I expect them to get away from. So I wouldn't imagine big hiring moves going on. Uh, They're going to be very efficient and very focused on where they deploy uh, capital and and money. But, um, you know, it certainly is something that um, that efficiency is going to be important as we we go forward and and the ability to, to you know, produce our oil just a little bit cheaper than everybody else.
3: So it's been a while, but overall, some positivity into 2020 for Canadian producers.
2: It is nice. Last year was uh, was tough. Entering into 2019, it is nice to have a little bit of a glimmer of hope on what things look like uh, for 2020.
3: Well, thanks for joining us, Andrew. Appreciate your uh, your thoughts on this. Thank you. Have a good day. You too, Andrew Baderil, is natural oil and gas leader with Deloitte.
0: Coming up to 12 on the morning news, we've heard the term of 5G, but what do you know about the technology? With the 5G network soon to be a reality in our nation, we wanted to learn more about what this means for the average Canadian. Joining us now is Andy Breyer, a tech reviewer from HandyAndyMedia.com. Good morning, Andy. Good morning, Andrew. Good to talk to you. And I want to, before we get into the 5G, let people know where you are and what you're doing this week.
4: Uh, That's right. So I'm in Las Vegas for CES, which is the big uh, consumer electronic trade show So 175,000 people have come down here to see the latest and greatest in tech. And I know we're talking about 5G, and that's going to be a big thing over here, but also artificial intelligence, autonomous driving, and just the weird and wacky gadgets. Uh, All of that's going to be showcased this week in Las Vegas.
3: Best gig ever. Hey, Andy?
4: You know what? I'm not getting very much sleep. Don't (laughs) tell me that in about three or four days, because I'm already sleep-deprived, and the show starts this morning.
3: So what are you seeing in terms of 5G down in Vegas right now?
4: Well, everybody, you know, we you, you hear about this 5G everywhere. And, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with Huawei being in the news. But essentially, 5G is the new wireless network. You know, when we have our smartphones and we're going around and we're searching on the Internet, we're using what's called 4G. And that's been around since about 2009. But with 5G, we're going to get even 10 times faster speeds and what this trade show over here in Vegas is all about is how is society gonna look different when we have those types of speeds where virtually zero latency. You know, when we download a movie, it might take a couple of minutes, but with 5G, it's a matter of seconds. So, oh. you know, even like companies that, we don't, even, that don't even exist will come on the scene because of this new technology. So we're really trying to think about what the future looks like with these uh, super-fast speeds.
0: Now, we have to talk about the Huawei piece and the government uh, saying, oh, yeah, we have to decide on a a company to uh, pair with to help this network come to life. And Huawei is one of the major names that is into the mix, helping us to build the infrastructure to support 5G in our nation. Uh, Could uh, this be a security risk in your view?
4: Well, yeah, so
0: Huawei,
4: if you look on the global, you know, across the globe, Huawei is the leader in 5G. They have mastered the hardware to get these speeds. And they've worked with countries all over the world. But there's a lot of fear and concern that Huawei, because it started, you know, through the Chinese government, There's speculations that there might be a backdoor into our wireless networks and so the u.s is not allowing any huawei hardware for their 5g networks and what they're doing is putting pressure on the partners including australia which will also won't allow 5g hardware from huawei but also to canada and they're saying if you use huawei's hardware to create a 5g network we're probably not going to share intelligent information with you so not only is this like um, a tech issue, but now it's become a kind of a geopolitical issue because of that that fear that maybe the government has some code to get in through the back door of our wireless networks, which could fear the the fear is that it could uh, do a cyber attack or something in the future.
3: So that's one worry. What about health concerns? Because you keep hearing about that too. Is there something we need to worry about in terms of our health and 5G?
4: Yeah, well these concerns we've had it for a long time for basically any kind of wireless frequency and it has to do with electromagnetic waves. Um, if you look at it, it's pretty safe. You know, the, the people that are complaining about 5G being harmful for our health are the same people that are worried about Wi Fi signals. And I can tell you right now, if Wi Fi is bad for our health, we're all doomed because there's Wi Fi everywhere. So My personal opinion, looking at what I've done on the research front, uh, I think it's going to be safe because it's really just using the same kind of wireless frequency technology that we've always had. It's just kind of improved to make it faster.
0: Okay, I know that you're not a government official and uh, you don't have the dates in front of you, uh, maybe specific, well, um, operative. Um, But the deal is uh, it's going to be rolled out. Do you have any idea when we're going to see 5G active in Canada at this point?
4: So it is being rolled out across you know, the world, um, but what you're going to see with 5G is because for 5G to work, you have to have these like little base stations everywhere so that you can get those super fast speeds, opposed to the the towers that we're used to, these big towers that we can see like on mountaintops or whatnot. So what you're going to see is 5G gets rolled out over the next couple of years. It's going to be in the urban areas. So in the downtown cities like Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, and then slowly it will go out into the suburbs and then into the rural areas. So it's a lot of hardware, and Canada is a very interesting thing because we have a huge, you know, landmass, but a very small population. So they're going to be very strategic Mm -hmm. as they roll out 5G, but it will happen uh, over the next couple of years.
3: Well, Andy, thanks for joining us. We'll be watching it. It's going to be interesting to see what comes of it. Thanks for joining us, and have fun in Vegas
4: thank you.
0: My pleasure.
3: Andy Breyer is a tech reviewer from HandyAndyMedia.com.
0: 842 on the morning news. Calgary resident Tammy Souter leaves today for Australia, where she'll be deployed with Samaritan's Purse to help victims of the massive, devastating bushfires that have ravaged parts of the country. Tammy joins us now on the line. Good morning. Thank you for taking the time.
5: Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: understand you're packed and ready to go. Where will you be landing in Australia?
5: Uh, I'm first going to land in Sydney. Uh, I'm going to head to our office there uh, so we can make a game plan on how we're moving forward together.
3: And what do you think that's going to look like? I mean, it, it, devastation in that country. The fires continue to burn. They've had a little bit of relief over the past couple of days. But boy, it's mm. it's a terrifying situation.
5: It, it really is. If you put it in perspective, um, you know, with Fort McMurray or our BC fires, uh, you know, you're four or five times bigger than that. Um, and, you know the the temperatures of the fire and everything that's happening there is just devastating and you know thousands of homes affected so yeah it's it's a it's a daunting task i mean obviously we come in there after the fact and uh we're really working with the residents to um you know come back to their homes uh whatever that looks like uh some you know fully burned some maybe partially and and what we're doing is is we're trying to help them to be able to move forward in the midst of that devastation and and what does that look like for them and what's their new normal going to be um and so that's some of the things that we're going to to help with
0: i understand this isn't your uh, first uh, so-called tour of duty tammy tell us about other <laughs> uh, missions you've been on around the uh, around the world and our in our fine country
5: yeah, I mean, obviously, in Canada, we've done lots. Uh, you know, we were part of the tornado response in Ottawa a couple of years ago. Last, this spring, we were, you know, part of the flood responses, 2013 flood response here in Calgary. Um, you know, the Fort McMurray fires, D.C. wildfires, um, you know, currently the Dorian hurricane response out in PEI. Um, and, and, you know, each one of those is a little bit different, and it looks a little bit different. And, uh, but, um, you know, we, we go with the same compassion and same heart to serve people and to help them uh, in some of their greatest times of need. Obviously, we work with more of the vulnerable populations, uh, those that are underinsured or not insured, and uh, just trying to make sure that people don't fall through the cracks and they get the help that they need. Uh, from what's happening in in the midst of their lives.
3: And Tammy, why was it important to you, particularly personally, but also to Samaritan's Purse to go down and help out?
5: Uh, you know, this is what we do. Uh, you know, obviously... Um we just we want to be there for people we want to be good neighbors and um you know not only is this work that i love but it's very rewarding uh to just walk alongside people uh i think in this day and age uh you know with our technologies we lose a little bit of that uh of just being together with people and so uh you know in some of our most vulnerable times is when we need people to walk alongside us and uh you know that's happened in my own life and uh you know Giving that back is is something that's really important to me, and I think us as an organization, that's the foundation of who we are. Uh, as the Good Samaritan, we want to we be good neighbors. We want to be good to those around us and uh, and try to help them as best we can with uh, what we've been blessed with.
0: Are there any other uh, uh, Calgarians from Samaritan's Purse uh, making the trip?
5: Yeah, so I'm going there to do the setup, uh, and then I'm having a team follow us, uh, I think they're going to be leaving Saturday. We're just working out all those details right now uh, to have an arrival uh, the following Monday, the 13th, into, into Sydney as well. And that'll be our first wave.
3: Well, it's important work you're doing. Uh, thank you for going and representing and helping out. I can only imagine, all, uh, you're right, the, the people there that have, you know, they've lost their homes, they've lost, mm-hmm. many have lost lives, the animals, just everything. It's, it's a disaster yeah. down there. So thanks for, really for doing is. what you're doing. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Good luck and be safe. Thank you very much. Tammy Souter is with Samaritan's Purse, the disaster relief manager for Canada, and she's headed boots on the ground in Australia.
0: 909 on the morning news. A University of Calgary student is catching the science world's attention for his award-winning work, first in prosthetics, and now working on a treatment that may reverse the effects of type 1 diabetes. Incredible stuff uh, to tell us more about his work and his passion, we're joined by Douglas Condrow, U of C, Biomedical Engineering, PHA student, a Ph.D. student. Good morning, Douglas. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're a Ph.D. student, and I can't even say Ph.D. <laughs> Sometimes
6: I get it wrong, too, so don't worry.
0: Can I ask you how old you are?
6: I'm 26.
0: Okay, let's, let's back it up, because science was a, a difficult topic for me uh, throughout the junior high and high school. Has this always been an interest of yours, and how did you get to where you are today?
6: Um, yeah, it's always been an interest for me. I think there's, um, it, I've always been very, very interested in biology. Um, and what's excited me most is, uh, applying kind of engineering concepts to biology. So kind of, uh, yeah, so that's always been an interest for me since I was young.
3: Well, let's start you back six years ago when you designed that prosthetic. Tell us who it was for and how you came up with this idea.
6: Yeah, so I... I was doing um, a summer uh, research program with the, the supervisor I'm working with right now at the University of Calgary, and um, I was drawn to the lab largely because he, he does a great job at uh, kind of having a collaborative lab and bringing these engineering tools to a biology lab. Um, so we have 3D printers, laser cutters, CNC milling machines, a whole bunch of really interesting engineering tools, um, and he's in contact with a lot of uh, vet, veterinary uh, uh, medical uh, professionals and we were contacted by some someone in Calgary who uh, um, well they had a rooster who had lost his feet so um, being the summer student in the group they asked me if I could kind of follow up with this project and see if we could use tools in the lab to um, try to build some feet for this rooster.
0: Okay. Here's the big question: How does a rooster respond with uh, prosthetic feet on? How did that work? Did he was it natural for the rooster to start walking again?
6: Uh, well, it was a, overall the process was a little bit iterative. So the first time that we tried the feet on, uh, it didn't go over very well. Um, I, to be honest, it was the first time I had designed prosthetics, so. Um, that wasn't too much of a surprise so the first time it didn't work but uh the next few trials actually seemed to be pretty natural for the rooster you'd kind of strap them onto his feet and he'd uh could run around with them quite well so uh it actually worked quite well he was also he was starting to get heal up a little bit more and was able to balance on his uh stubs a little bit as well so that also played into um the prosthetics
3: you know it sounds like you give the new kid the the job make him come up with some feet for a rooster and then you nailed it and now look at you so now you're getting all this attention for for a process that could ultimately reverse the effects of type 1 diabetes tell us what you've found
6: yeah absolutely so one thing that i'd like to uh quickly mention is that this research built on a process called the edmonton protocol and it was developed up in edmonton um And that's the idea where you take um, donor islet tissue, so stuff tissue that produces insulin, and put it into a type 1 diabetic patient. um, And it releases insulin and helps them control their blood sugar levels. Uh, One of the challenges with this process is that the tissues kind of die over time. So the project that I'm working on is developing a device that can produce enough tissues and keep them healthy uh, so that they can survive in the patient.
0: Let's talk about the patience it takes from your line of work, uh, Douglas, in the sense that, like you mentioned with the rooster, and you, know, you can apply this to diabetes, I'm sure as well, your first attempt, there's, a, what, a one in a million chance that the first thing is going to work. You have to stick to it. Is that something that comes naturally to you?
6: Uh, yeah, I think it actually adds to the reward of having success in a project. Um, you'll... Really, especially in the field of uh, biology, if it works the first time, you probably did something wrong. <laughs> um, so the, the expectation that uh, you're going to make a lot of prototypes and try and try again is very realistic. I, for the project that I uh, received the MITACS award in, I've made over 50 prototypes um, before things started working. So it's a lot of trial and error.
3: Douglas, I'm in awe of brilliant minds like yours. And I think it's a great reminder that, you know, we live in Calgary, so we just kind of take it for granted that we've got a university here in the city. But there really are some amazing things going on at the U of C.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is, uh, although the award is highlighting my work, I'd also like to say that there's just fantastic work going on in our lab and at the University of Calgary. Um, All the work that I've done, Um, It's done with a team, so we have an excellent group in the Ungern lab, and uh, having brilliant minds to work with and support my research is something that makes something like this possible.
0: What would you say to to 10 years ago to yourself or to any student uh, current day in high school or late junior high about biomedical engineering? Because I don't think that's something that people pull out of the sky as a career choice when you're younger.
6: Um, yeah, to be honest, I had no clue biomedical engineering existed until probably my first year of uh, engineering. Um, and I, one thing that I'd say to kids who are thinking of a career in this, just start doing things hands on. Um, if you have access to a 3D printer or you can pr- start playing around with 3D modeling, this is, uh, this is something that's applicable to biomedical engineering but also other engineering uh, focuses.
3: It's brilliant. You're brilliant, obviously. Congratulations and keep up the great work. And uh, we'll probably be talking to you one day down the road for another amazing thing that you've come up with.
6: Well, thank you very much for having me.
3: Thanks. Douglas Condro is a UFC student and uh, is just a young guy who obviously, you know, has a brilliant mind who's looking for great things to to do and to 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 be able to
0: come up with and accomplish. Well, I can't imagine having a mind like Douglas has, oh, but it's one of those... When you were at 26, were you? Absolutely not. Yeah. I was, uh, you know, hanging out at the bars trying to pick up girls <laughs> unsuccessful. But I think that <laughs> In the end, it's it, it's really interesting because this is the kind of science that I can kind of wrap my head around in that it's tangible. Like when he's done, this rooster has feet. Yeah, um, and three D printing. Was, yeah.
3: like it's just it's a it's mind boggling.
0: If he finds success, he could move us closer to a step toward a cure for diabetes. So the tangible and the reward of seeing things come together, I think that's where uh, you know I can understand why he enjoys what he does.
3: And maybe one day you too could be a scientist, Andrew. I don't
0: think so, uh, but uh, good for Douglas and his crew. Well, if you're a condominium owner, you want to hear this the next guest and what the next guest has to say, because there are new rules that mean Alberta condo owners could be on the hook for up to $50,000 in deductible costs when it comes to uh, claims. Robert Noche is a lawyer who specializes in real estate and condominium law. He is from Miller Thompson LLP, and he joins us now. He's uh, based in Edmonton. Good morning, Roberto.
1: Good morning. Thank you.
0: Uh, let's talk about this. So uh, starting January 1st, there was a change. Now, did this come uh, from the government or insurance companies? Uh, Tell us about it.
1: Well, first of all, the, the change came from the government of Alberta, which became effective on the 1st of January 2020. However, you have to go back seven years when the previous progressive conservative government, five premiers ago, when they issued a report back in 2013 recommending that owners should be responsible for paying the insurance deductible if the damage arises from that owner's unit. And the minister at the time of Service Alberta at the time under the progressive conservative government under Premier Alison Redford put that forward back seven years ago. So this topic has been around for seven years, has been around for with five premiers and probably seven or eight ministers of service, Alberta. So it's not a new topic. The only thing that's changed is the fact that it became law on January 1st, 2020.
3: So, Roberto, can you break it down for us? What, what was in place prior to January 1st, and, and what does it mean to us now?
1: Prior to January 1st, 2020, Condominium corporations could go after owners for the deductible if a loss occurred in that owner's unit, provided that the bylaws specific to that condominium complex allowed for the corporation to do that. If the bylaws were silent, then the power did not exist. And the courts generally supported that type of approach what happens what happened on january 1st is that all condominium corporations in alberta are now allowed to go after an owner if that loss originated from that owner's unit so prior to january 1st it would only apply If your bylaws, and there weren't many, Mm -hmm. but if your bylaws allowed for the corporation to go after an owner, but now January 1st, the law applies to all condominium corporations and all owners, regardless of what your bylaws say. So that's a significant change. The other thing that's probably even more significant is this, typically... Typically, in the bylaws that I've seen, that I've drafted, and and I've seen others draft, typically the corporation would have to prove negligence on the part of the owner to trigger that provision under their bylaws. What's changed as well now, as of January 1st, is that the corporation doesn't have to prove negligence at all. As long as the loss originated from that owner's unit that's all they need to prove Mm. they don't have to prove that you were negligent they don't have to prove anything however the government did provide three defenses available to owners to dispute the claim of the corporation if they seek to uh, reimbursement for the deductible but the defenses are very limited and what it will mean, of course, for owners is that if there is a dispute, uh, you're probably off to to the courthouse to to fight over this. Well,
0: and there's then there's the issue right there. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to pay for that. So, can you give us an example of something that would be a fifty thousand dollar deductible? Like an example of how I might find myself on the hook for that large sum?
1: Yeah. So, first of all, it really depends. First of all, the maximum amount. Liable uh, The maximum amount that an owner can be liable is $50,000. What we've seen over the past number of years is that insurance deductibles have gone up considerably. In fact, I was just dealing with one uh, today with a client of mine. Their deductible for a water loss is $10,000. And for other claims, it's $25,000. So this particular client of mine has not had a lot of claims. In fact, it hasn't had any claims for a long time. And they've got a very good insurance rate and they've got a very low deductible. And so in that case, if an issue arose in that particular condo and there was a water loss from your unit and it damaged two or three other units and the corporation's insurance had to be called to fix the units, the deductible would be ten thousand dollars in that particular condo. But what we do know what we do know in Alberta, no condominium corporation is the same in that some condominium corporations deductible could be as high as fifty thousand and a hundred thousand dollars. Uh, depending upon, of course, the number of claims you have had. So it really depends. And, And that puts now the onus on owners to find out what the deductible amounts are. And secondly, to inquire with your own personal insurance company to see if you can buy insurance to cover that insurance deductible in the event the claim is made against you.
3: Wow. Well, that's something so important that everybody should know. This applies to condo owners right across the province. So obviously, Roberto, the bottom line would be check your insurance, check your deductible, make sure you know exactly what these rules are all about now.
1: Absolutely, because if a claim is made against you, and you don't fall within any of the defenses available to you under the regulations, you will be personally on the hook for that amount. And unless you have up to $50,000 of ready cash in the bank account, I would strongly urge all owners to inquire with their insurance company to buy that level of protection. And hopefully they'll never have to use it, but that peace of mind should give them comfort in the event of a claim made against them.
0: Some scary stuff, but thank you very much for your time this morning, Roberto.
1: My pleasure. Anytime.
0: Roberto Noche is a lawyer who specializes in real estate and condominium law. He's from Miller Thompson LLP in Edmonton.